In the last half of Galatians 5, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. In comparing the two lists, it sounds very much like the Apostle is describing two warring factions, which he is, the flesh against the Spirit. The works of the flesh are the visible outcome of what it means to have a sinful nature. Because we're flesh, apart from God's grace, this is what our lives will often look like, characterized by the kinds of bad behavior listed here. Yet when we're delivered from the flesh by the death of Jesus and by the indwelling Holy Spirit, the change from being in the flesh to living in the Spirit manifests itself in the presence of the so-called fruit of the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, the Spirit will produce His fruit. So what are these fruit, and what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? We'll tackle these questions in a few more in this episode of The Blessed Hope. Welcome to the Blessed Hope Podcast. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, and this is episode 12 in our series on the book of Galatians. Our text this time, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 26. We begin this episode by picking up where we left off last time. So we're talking about the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, and we begin by simply going through the list that Paul gives us here in these verses. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Having spoken of walking in the Spirit in verse 16 of Galatians 5, Paul moves on to contrast the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21 with the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 through 23. The two lists stand in stark contrast to one another, reflecting Paul's frequent use of antithesis. For Paul, the flesh and the spirit are two warring powers, which reflect Paul's two-age eschatology. Paul is warning any of the Galatians still on the fence regarding circumcision about the dangers of the works of the flesh, which lies at the heart of the conduct of those Judaizers who were insisting that Christians abandon the realm of the spirit, abandon the realm of the age to come, to re-embrace the flesh from which Jesus came to deliver them. Now, as for some pastoral reflection on why this distinction matters, John Calvin points out something obvious, yet which we are often reluctant to acknowledge. He says, Paul now draws a picture both of the flesh and the spirit. If we knew ourselves, we would not need this declaration that we're nothing but flesh, but such is our innate hypocrisy that we never perceive our foulness until the tree has been made known by its fruits. The fruit of the flesh is our default setting. 
that is until God gives to us the blessed Holy Spirit, who unites us to Christ. Left to ourselves and apart from God's grace, we really can't understand the gravity of our condition, and we're always going to see ourselves as better off than we really are. In verses 19 through 20 of Galatians 5, we just read the passage, Paul gives us a list of those behaviors that are characteristics of the flesh and are manifestations of life in this present evil age, the age characterized by the flesh. So here we encounter one of the so-called sin lists, which are found throughout the New Testament. So although we just read verses 19 to 21, let's go through the passage again so we're very clear about what Paul means here when he speaks of the works of the flesh. They're evident, he says, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And Paul pointedly says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When Paul begins a sentence with now or day in the Greek, that ties his comments here back to those he made previously in verse 13, where he writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but to love serve one another. So once we're set free from the flesh's bondage, we're to cease acting as though the flesh still dominates us. Now before we dig deeper into the closing verses of the chapter, chapter 5 of Galatians, it's worthwhile to note that there is no distinction made here between mortal and venial sins, as the Roman Catholic Church erroneously teaches as late as the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And you can look at section 1854 and find this distinction still being taught in Rome. There's also no distinction made between big and little sins, as many Christians embrace or often imply in their teaching. Not mentioned are any of the so-called house rules of American fundamentalism, Things like smoking and drinking and dancing and, back in the olden days, card playing. When we look at what Paul actually says about the flesh, it becomes apparent that, sadly, too many Christians are concerned with things that God is not and not sufficiently concerned with things that he is. While all sin condemns equally, sins in our thinking, our speaking, or in our actions, not all sins have equal consequences. The person who commits adultery or theft in their hearts is as guilty as the cheater or the thief. But sins of the heart don't enrage a jilted spouse, nor will the police be called if I steal my neighbor's car in my heart. Now, thankfully for me, that's not as big a problem as it used to be because my neighbor had a really cool car. Now he's got an old beater, so uh, that's not as much of a problem as it used to be. In any case, the 15 works of the flesh mentioned by Paul here fall into four basic categories. All of these works were common throughout the Greco-Roman world, so none of the things on the list were new to the Galatians. With several exceptions, the terms that Paul characterizes here as works of the flesh are mentioned in a number of other ancient sources. And so the Gentiles among the Galatians probably had engaged in many of these things before their conversion, and some at the time thinking of them as probably virtues. To be in the flesh is to be self-deceived about whether these are real virtues or whether they are vices. 
While those Jewish converts to Christianity knew these things to be contrary to God's commandments and strived wholeheartedly to avoid them, they were also seeking to be justified by works of the law. And so if they did not practice such things like the godless Gentiles did, and if they avoided the things on the list, well, doing so was seen as an act of righteousness or earning merit or favor with God. Even worse, perhaps, being in bondage to the flesh often means externalizing sin. I didn't do these things with my body, and doing them in my heart, well, that really doesn't count. And so while living under the dominion of the flesh, those sins of self-centeredness, which are internal, which are in the heart, aren't seen to be sinful because they're not acted upon. Furthermore, we are not convicted of our sins of the flesh by the Holy Spirit. We may feel guilty, nor do we benefit from the Spirit's restraining influence. Paul's vice list, or sin list, breaks down here as follows. First, there are manifestations of sexual sin, such as sexual morality, porneia in the Greek, which refers to any sexual sin, including participation in temple prostitution. The Christian sexual ethic is that sexual relations are limited to marriage, and that sex before marriage, fornication, or sex outside of marriage, adultery, or same-sex acts, homosexuality, are considered sinful and are a manifestation of the flesh. Next up is debauchery. The Greek word means something like uncleanness, and a good translation of that would be promiscuity. The second category, there are false religious practices, like idolatry and witchcraft. The latter is pharmakeia, from which we get our term pharmacy. As used here, the word likely refers to magic and spells, where intoxicating drugs were often used in connection with these pagan religious practices. Third, there are sins of self-centeredness, such as hatred of others, hostility, discord, that's being quarrelsome, jealousy, that's pretty obvious, fits of rage, which would be losing your temper and showing outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, pretty obvious, dissensions and factions, again obvious, but both of which would apply particularly in Galatia, then finally Paul lists envy. Now, the fourth category are sins of intemperance, such as drunkenness and orgies. And the latter is very likely tied to those feasts and banquets that were associated with the worship of the pagan gods, oftentimes leading to orgiastic behavior. And in case he missed anything, forgot something, Paul adds to his list, and things like these. And Paul also makes it very clear that he's already told the Galatians about such things previously, as I warned you before. Now, vice lists often end with a stern warning, such as Paul gives here in verse 21. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's warning reflects the language of inheritance as used in the Old Testament, which refers to those things God promised to his people through Israel's prophets. Under the Sinai covenant, these prophecies are tied to the promised land, but in light of the dawn of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ's messianic mission, Paul can reinterpret the inheritance to refer to something eschatological, something future, eternal life in Christ. Those bound by the flesh will not receive the promised blessing, and they'll perish in their sins. But those in the Spirit will indeed receive the promised inheritance.
Paul is emphatic that those who live lives that are characterized by these manifestations of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to the reign of God, the ushering into the new creation and the age of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is mentioned by Paul 13 times in his letters. Paul speaks of the kingdom as inaugurated by the coming of Jesus, but not yet consummated this side of Christ's second advent. The kingdom is eschatological, and that's but another way of describing the arrival of the age to come that's even now breaking in on this present evil age. And that's the way the kingdom is depicted throughout the Gospels. Paul's point in the Galatian context is not to contend that if any of these sins are present in our lives at the time of death, that we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But his list does push us to realize that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That's from Galatians 3.10. So Paul's list condemns each of us. There's not a person on earth who's entitled to look down on anybody else and say, Well, I'm better than you are. If we're characterized by such behavior, these works of the flesh, it's because we remain under the domination of the flesh. And so the big picture here is that works of the flesh are the characteristic of those who belong to this present evil age, while the fruit of the Spirit are the characteristics of being set free from the flesh because we're now under the reign of the Spirit. Think big picture here. Our own sinfulness is readily apparent in the fact that we're all prone to hear these lists and then think of others who we think are doing these things and then we condemn them because of it. Martin Luther reminds us of something very true, that in every church, quoting, there are some who are strong and some who are weak. Paul is trying to achieve a balance between them so that one group will not cause unnecessary offense to the other. That's really important advice. But these lists do condemn all of us, and that's exactly what they're designed to do. The law of God exposes these works of the flesh in all of us. And just because we've not committed these sins with our hands or our bodies doesn't mean we haven't done them in our minds or in our hearts. If we've merely contemplated one of these things, we're as guilty as if we'd done it a million times. Though, as just mentioned, thinking about these things certainly doesn't carry with it the consequences of actually committing the act. But the flesh is what we were, and the flesh remains, even after we have come under the dominion of the indwelling Holy Spirit so that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, to characterize how this impacts the Christian life, those who are in the flesh, those who are not Christians, are enslaved to the law and characterized by the conduct just described by Paul. The things on this list, his vice list, his sin list, These are the outward manifestation of the sinful nature that is the flesh. But the Christian, on the other hand, is characterized by the following list, the fruit of the Spirit, not the former, not the works of the flesh, although the remnants of indwelling sin will frequently manifest themselves in our lives because the sinful nature conflicts with the Spirit, as Paul makes plain, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We will struggle with indwelling sin until we die. 
So let's move on then to look at the next section, verses 22 through 26. That's the concluding part of Galatians chapter 5. And we begin with Paul describing the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now in verses 22 through 26, Paul sets out of the fruit of the Spirit in obvious contrast to the works of the flesh just enumerated. Now Martin Luther points out something that is patently obvious, but it's really easily overlooked. Paul does not contrast works of the flesh with the works of the Spirit. But as Luther observes, and I'm quoting, Paul does not call these works of the Spirit, but gives them the nobler designation of fruits, because those who have them give glory to God, and by their virtues point others to the teaching and faith of Christ. So Paul here speaks of works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. And the nine fruit, the nine fruits of the Spirit mentioned by Paul are characteristic of a Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so the indicative, the the statement of fact, the indicative justification which is being declared righteous becomes the imperative of striving against the flesh which is the characteristic of life in the Spirit. Both the declaration of righteousness and the striving against the flesh are the fruit of justifying faith. And that justifying faith will produce the fruit of the Spirit that Paul is about to enumerate. Now, when the Christian receives the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, they enter into the age to come. We participate in the new creation, and we spontaneously begin to bear the Spirit's fruit, and that's a sign of the Spirit's indwelling. All of these benefits, however, are provisional. We see them only in their beginning form. We see them only provisionally. And we await for them to be fully consummated when the Lord returns. So there's the already not yet dilemma here. We already start to see these fruits of the Spirit manifest, but won't see them in their fullness until the consummation. Now to be a little more specific here, as for the relationship of justification to the fruit of the Spirit, Gerhardus Voss points out something that's really fascinating because there is in Paul's letter, as he says, and makes a great argument for it, a direct connection between the righteousness given us in justification and the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's a point we made repeatedly in the earlier chapters of this letter. Says Voss, and I'm quoting, The possession of the Spirit is for Paul the natural correlate, the crown, and insofar the infallible exponent of the state of dikaiosune, the state of righteousness. And so for Paul then to be justified and reckoned as righteous is to possess via indwelling the Holy Spirit. And to possess the Holy Spirit is to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so Voss can put the matter as follows. Here, the righteousness of the world to come, which is to be stowed in the last judgment, is represented as a thing which the Christian still waits for. This waiting, however, is determined by two coordinated factors. On the one hand, it takes place ek pistios, 
out of faith, and on the other, pneumati, in the spirit. And these two designate the subjective, that is the internal, and the objective, that is the historical, ground respectively, on which the confident expectation is based. In the spirit, not in the sarks, not in the flesh. In faith, not in ergonomu, not in works of the law. That has the Christian assurance that the full eschatological righteousness will become theirs. So English to Voss, we're justified by faith. That connects us to the Holy Spirit. When we trust in Christ, we'll bear fruit in faith, not from works of the law. Now, there's much important background to Paul's discussion of the fruit of the Spirit here, and it's worth at least scratching the surface. As Moo points out in his commentary in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is really the concrete manifestation in the life of individual Christians of the very thing that Israel's prophets had predicted. In the age to come, the Spirit is said to take possession of God's people and bear his fruit, something that life in the flesh cannot bring about. And so the Old Testament prophets foresaw that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. For example, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and following. That the Spirit will enable the Messiah, the, the coming Messiah, to fulfill his messianic mission. And so we have in Isaiah 11, verse 2 and 42, verse 1, the notion that the Blessed Holy Spirit will be in some way the possession of the Messiah and that Holy Spirit and possessing that Spirit will equip him to perform his messianic mission to its fullness. Furthermore, we're told that the Spirit is going to renew Israel at the end of the age, and that the Spirit will actually dwell in the land, according to Isaiah 32, verses 15 to 17, and Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And so as the prophets of Israel look forward, the coming of the Spirit is the agent through whom Yahweh accomplishes all of his purposes for Israel, and that's a point that is assumed here by Paul in making this point. Well, if you feel like the Christian life is a war between what we were, the flesh, and what we are in Christ, well, then you're experiencing the normal Christian life, at least as Paul describes it here. As we've seen, the works of the flesh were tearing the Galatian churches apart, contrary to the fruit of the Spirit, which is the proper basis for Christian unity. As Paul makes clear, Israel's prophets foretold of the age of the Spirit in which we now live and enjoy all the benefits of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, being reckoned as righteous, indwelt by God's Spirit, participants of the new creation, participants in the dawn of the coming of the kingdom of God, and sealed by that Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And so when we return to our text momentarily, We'll continue to flush out, pun intended, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit in the lives of the people of God. If you're enjoying the Blessed Hope podcast, please tell a friend or two about what we're doing here, and that is an in-depth exposition of the biblical text, and I think that's important. And I know it's niche, but some folks like this kind of more detailed and in-depth study. Uh, if you know of any that might like it, please tell them. Show notes for this and other episodes of this podcast, The Blessed Hope, can be found on my blog. So go to the Riddle blog, that's kimriddlebarger.com, the Riddle blog at kimriddlebarger.com, 
look for the Blessed Hope Podcast tab that's at the top of the page. So there's a number of tabs at the very top. Look for the Blessed Hope Podcast, and there you'll find all the prior episodes and all the show notes. On my blog, you'll also find links to years of sermons, which I preached at Christ Reformed Church. Uh, there are a number of uh, taped lectures on a variety of topics. You can find information about my books. And there are a lot of publications that are unique to the blog, things I've written through the years that I've tried to keep stored there on the blog, and you can uh, look through those, and maybe you'll find something of interest. That's the Riddle blog, kimriddlebar.com. You can also leave me feedback at the Riddle blog or ask questions in the Contact Me section. That's also a tab at the top of the page. Feedback is really helpful to me. So ask any questions you'd like me to address in future podcasts. I've gotten a couple that are off topic but are great questions. I'll answer those personally. But if the questions arise from the podcast, arise from the series on Galatians, I'll be happy to address them. I've gotten a couple uh, so far, but I'd like a whole lot more. Um, I'm going to have a wrap-up episode and we'll talk about a few things, and I'll include the questions I've gotten in that final uh, podcast on this series. So feedback is really helpful because it's enabled me, to, I think, to make the podcast a little bit better each time I do it. Some of you who have suggested things may notice I'm actually doing them. Uh, it's been very helpful. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And finally comes my rant. Please read through the book of Galatians in its entirety at least one time. So find a quiet chair, find a quiet place, read through Galatians one time in its entirety. Uh, try it a second time if you've already done it. Again, I'll suggest that if you have an audio Bible, listen to Galatians read through in its entirety. I do that when I'm doing my uh, daily uh, yard work outside. It's just great to hear the whole thing read through. Uh, do it in your car, going to work, going to shopping, whatever. Uh, listen to Galatians all the way through, and you'll you'll pick up things that you don't get when you're reading it. So those two together, reading it and hearing it, are really a great way to become familiar with the book and know what's in it and know what to expect. And now it's back to The Blessed Hope. When we turn to the specific fruit mentioned by Paul and take a closer look, we find love at the top of the list, and Paul had indicated that previously in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Now, as Paul mentions elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 comes to mind, I think, for most of you, love is superior to faith or hope. And there are numerous references to love throughout Paul's epistle. And let's just go through them briefly to, to get a sense of how central this is in Paul's thinking. The reason that Christians are to love one another is because God has first loved us. We find that in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7, and in Romans 5, 8. Love is described by Paul as the atmosphere in which we are to relate to one another. He says that in Ephesians 5, 2. Love is described as a garment that we put on in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14. It's the secret of unity in Colossians 2, 2, a point particularly germane here to the Galatians. It's a characteristic of Christian maturity, as Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 15. And it provides the really the proper restraint of Christian liberty, as Paul tells us here in Galatians, verse 13 of chapter 5, and again in Romans 14, verse 15, and in his Corinthian letter, chapter 8, verses 1 and 13. And so for Paul, then, the law is fulfilled in love, and love is demonstrated in 
serving one another. That's why the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to enable us to serve one another in love. Joy is also mentioned by Paul, but joy shouldn't be equated with happiness. They're two different things. The joy of which Paul speaks is, in a real sense, being aware of God's favor towards us because of the work of Christ and because that work has been applied to us through the blessed Holy Spirit. And so Paul can exhort the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, chapter 3, verse 1. And he tells them we're to have joy in the faith, that is, in believing the gospel, Philippians 1.25. It's perfectly possible that we might be in the midst of really difficult circumstances, yet still have joy. At times, we're unhappy. We suffer trials. We endure tribulations, and yet we can have joy through knowing God's love for us, as seen in the cross and the empty tomb. Peace, the next on the list, Irene, if you know anyone, any ladies named Irene, it's taken from the Greek word here for peace. Peace is drawn from the Hebrew shalom, and it conveys the idea of a sense of peace with God that is a cessation of of warfare, a cessation of hostilities, but also wholeness or soundness and prosperity. In the writings of Paul, peace appears most commonly in greetings and in benedictions where God with Jesus is identified as the source of peace. Paul also speaks of the God of peace in Romans 15, verse 33, and 16, verse 20, and again in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. The gospel is called the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6, 15, because Christ has made peace with God for us through his shedding of blood on the cross for our sins. Now, patience derives from God because God is patient with us. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 6 comes to mind. And according to Paul's letter to Timothy, the supreme example of patience is realized through faith in Jesus. As Paul says there, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe on him for eternal life. And so we're to be patient with others, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and to keep the unity of the Spirit. Kindness refers to God's gracious attitude toward sinners, and that's primarily the kindness by which God leads us to repentance, the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. In fact, we could say that salvation itself is spoken of as God's love for humanity in Titus 3, verse 4. As we have experienced God's kindness to us, so we are to demonstrate that same kindness to others. Goodness is closely related to kindness, and it's another on the list here, and refers to an attitude of generous kindness to others, which is being happy to do far more than is required by mere justice. So that's a sense of going above and beyond. When the circumstances require one thing, we do even more than what's required. Faithfulness is understood in the sense of being trustworthy. That is, we are people who do what we say we're going to do, and our word means what we intend it to mean. Gentleness refers to an ethical grace in the believer's life and may be described as a humble and pliable submission to God's will, which reflects itself in humility and patience and forbearance towards others, regarding even insult or injury as God's means of chastisement, as in 2 Samuel 16.11, or in training, as in Numbers 12, verse 3. I'll add to that that self-control is really the ability to keep one's lust or passions under control. 
one commentator points out, I think it's best, and I agree with him on this, it's best not to focus upon the individual fruit mentioned in Paul's list, but rather view the list cumulatively. Now, no doubt, love is going to be on the top of any list that Paul would draw up, but it's likely that the particular fruits mentioned here are specifically relevant to the situation in Galatia, especially among those who are so busy causing division in the churches, a point which is evident from verse 26 that closes out the chapter. And there Paul says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The works of the flesh cause division, but the fruit of the Spirit will bring unity. And the Galatians then ought to see themselves here in Paul's contrast. The Judaizers, will they manifest the works of the flesh, something that was common to all before coming to faith in Christ, something that everyone in that culture was familiar with, the things that are enumerated by Paul. But had the situation in Galatia been different, so too might Paul's vice list be a bit different. While love is supreme, that's not the only fruit the Spirit bears. After all, we live by the Spirit in verse 25, and he will bear his fruit. As Calvin points out, the death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit. And if God's Spirit lives in us, he should govern all our actions. In this verse, Calvin says, live refers to the inward power and walk to the outward actions. According to Paul, then, the indwelling Holy Spirit will begin to produce these fruits in the lives of each Christian believer. Now, on a practical level, we do not bear such fruit by self-consciously trying to produce the fruit mentioned here in the list. There's no imperative here. Bear more fruit. Instead, we will bear the fruit of the Spirit by taking avail of the means of grace that God has given to us. That's the preached word and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But Paul speaks of life in the Spirit in verse 25 as keeping in step with the Spirit. If we walk in the Spirit, we will bear fruit. As another practical matter, it is important that we not attempt to derive the assurance of our salvation from the fruit that we're bearing, or not bearing as the case may be, although some of us may be able to do so at times in the Christian life. It's better, I think, to cut back on the introspection looking within, and instead look for fruit in the lives of our neighbor and encourage them with the fruit that we actually see in their lives. We should learn to look to the merits of Christ to gain our assurance, not within. And too often we're taught to take a look to see how we're doing, whether we're gaining the victory over particular sins or whether or not we're increasing our personal holiness. The danger here is the dissatisfaction with our own personal progress and sanctification, which might actually be a genuine mark of godliness, is instead turned into a morbid fear that we might not be Christians because we're not yet bearing the kind of fruit we think we should. And so we have to train ourselves to look to Christ's promises in the Word, and which are confirmed by the sacraments, and there we will find the assurance of our salvation. And, as a result, we will bear fruit. In verse 24, Paul returns to the spirit-flesh conflict as first mentioned back in verse 17. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, the apostle reminds the Galatians to focus on Jesus' victory over sin in the flesh for those who belong to Christ. Those who are in Christ, belong to Christ, and are here said to have crucified the flesh. 
Jesus died for us, yet another reference to Christ's work on the behalf of his people, a work which is completely effectual, and that is the substitutionary nature of the atonement, Christ dying in the place of his people, and effectively accomplishing what he wants to accomplish, namely to crucify the flesh. In other places, Paul actually speaks of Jesus' crucifixion using a passive voice. He speaks of being crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.19, and he's going to go on to speak of being crucified to the world in the next chapter. But here in verse 24, Paul uses the active voice, and that emphasizes the importance of accepting the indicative, that is, Christ has crucified the flesh, and that's the basis for fruit-bearing, that's the basis for walking in the Spirit. The fact that the verb have crucified is in the aorist tense, which means that the action is complete, that tells us that the believer was crucified with Christ at the time of their conversion, according to Galatians 2.20, and that was signed and sealed in their baptism when Paul says in Galatians 3.26-27, they put on Christ. The power of sin over every believer has been broken forever, objectively. But subjectively, in terms of our Christian experience, this victory will not be the constant psychological experience of victory. Instead, we're going to feel the struggle with sin. To put it yet another way, Christ's death for us is a starting point for living the Christian life. The indicative has the first word, the flesh has been crucified, and that becomes the basis for the imperative, a subjunctive here, a conditional, if we do, then this. In this case, the subjunctive, which kind of functions as an imperative, is if we walk. It is therefore a characteristic of every Christian believer that despite the difficult struggle with indwelling sin, the power of sin over us is broken. Every Christian is going to make some progress in their growth in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and in conformity to the image of Christ because the Spirit will bear his fruit in us. The curse of the law has been removed by Christ's death. The sentence of death which the curse brings upon us has been replaced for every Christian by the life of the Spirit. The slavery that resulted from our bondage to sin and to the flesh has been done away with through Christ's death for us and through the life imparted to us by the Spirit. And while the sinful nature remains a potent and subversive foe, its power over us has been broken. The flesh, as a principle and as a power, has been defeated. And so the Christian life, while a struggle is not one of defeat because Jesus Christ has lived the victorious life for us. Everyone who is in Christ has already crucified the flesh and will keep in step with the Spirit, since it's through the Spirit that the Christian lives it all. And so once the power of sin has been broken through union with Christ, we are now to walk by the Spirit. And as we walk by the Spirit, we will daily crucify the flesh. So there's a, a sense of a finished act, the flesh has been crucified, and the daily act, the realization that that's already happened, and the acknowledgement that we can't live in the flesh any longer. We walk in the Spirit by taking avail of the means of grace, that is, the Word and the sacraments, and through fellowship with God's people, 
and through prayer, which is the chief exercise of thanksgiving. As Paul understands the Christian life, we will persevere to the end and be saved because we are said to live by the Spirit and the indwelling Spirit, that same Spirit by whom we live, is the down payment which guarantees the redemption of our bodies on the day of Christ Jesus. A point powerfully made in Ephesians 1 verse 13. We are to strive to put to death the deeds done in the flesh. We are to strive to serve and love one another in love. And we're given the imperative here not to become conceited since all that we have in terms of the inheritance is a gift from God. And it's a gift. We didn't earn it. We were given the gift through faith in Jesus. And that's why we're not to provoke each other, as the Judaizers were doing in Galatia. We are not to envy each other, as the Judaizers were doing of Paul, since it is God who calls us to faith, and that's not because of anything good in us, but because of his sovereign pleasure and purpose. But even though the guilt and power that sin once held over us is broken, we will nevertheless struggle with the remnants of that sinful nature, which we call indwelling sin. And we will struggle until we die, because the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And so as Paul then describes the normal or the expected Christian life as walking by the Spirit, he means that that's a life characterized by a struggle, a fierce struggle with the remnants of the flesh and its works. But the good news is that every Christian will win that battle, because Christ ensures that we do. The struggle with indwelling sin is not only normal, it's essential, since the indwelling spirit will never allow a Christian to live in complacency toward their sin. He will convict us of our sin, and he will move us to repentance. And so as Christians living by the Spirit and and struggling with indwelling sin, our hope should always be focused upon the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, who Paul says loved us and gave himself for us, and who, as the risen and ascended Lord of glory, lives to make intercession for his people, ensuring that our faith will not fail and that we will continue in that faith. It is the same risen and ascended Lord who baptizes his people in the blessed Holy Spirit, and he ensures that all of Christ's benefits, all of his saving benefits, are made ours through faith alone. And since we live by the Spirit, We live in the light of Christ's death for our sins, and we trust that his perfect obedience to the commandments is our only means of withstanding God's righteous judgments. Living by the Spirit means that we must take avail of all those glorious gifts that God gives to us, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel which comes to us in the Word and which is confirmed for us in the broken body and the shed blood of the Savior himself, who is offered to us in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. To hear and believe the word of God is to receive the sacraments in faith, and that means to wage war on indwelling sin and to bear the Spirit's fruit in us because that's what it means to walk by the Spirit. And that, beloved, is what Paul exhorts us to do here in the second half of Galatians chapter 5.
Well, thanks so much for listening to the Blessed Hope. And until next time, Maranatha, the Lord come.